Good morning, Bethel Church. My name is Nathan Rato. I'm a senior at Fargo South High School, and I'm very excited to talk to you all today about discipleship. Now, you may be thinking to yourselves, what is discipleship? Simply put, discipleship is defined by the message that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28, 19, which is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But some of you here today may be asking yourselves, what is a disciple? Because it's really not a word we use in our everyday lives. Jesus continues in Matthew 28, 20, by stating, and teaching them, in reference to the disciples, to obey everything I have commanded you. What Jesus is saying here is the simple definition of a disciple of Christ, one who obeys everything Jesus commands. Of course, not everyone will be perfect at this, but in this sense, all people who accept Jesus as Lord of their lives and as Savior are disciples. Further expanding on this point, Christian author Zane Pratt offers six key ways that disciples are transformed into followers of Jesus. I don't have time to go into every one of these, but I will expand on three key transformations of a disciple's life. A transformed will, transformed relationships, and a transformed purpose. So first, let's talk about how disciples have a transformed will. Now, a transformed will means that our desires transition from the sinful ways of the world to the good ways of the Lord. It means denying ourselves and our sinful nature in favor of, the, of following Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 23, and 24, that anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. This means that disciples show their devotion to Jesus by obeying what he says and turning away from sin. This means that disciples are transformed to have a will to obey Jesus and not to obey the world. 1 John 3, 6 says that no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. This verse tells us that in order to be fully transformed into disciples of Jesus, we need to turn away from our sinful nature. Now, this verse does not mean that we have to stop sinning completely to love God. But it does mean that we need to feel conviction for our sins and do everything we can to obey Jesus and make our will like his. In other words, disciples are transformed into conforming our will and our desires to those more Christ-like. Next, let's examine transformations in relationships. Another mark of a disciple is that he or she will love sacrificially, obeying the command in John 15, 12, and 13, to love each other as I have loved you, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus showed us his love sacrificially by dying on the cross for our sins. And as a result, we must show this love to others. Disciples understand this message very clearly. Disciples love others sacrificially. There are many ways that disciples do this. One example that has personally struck me is the example of my friend James. He's one of the greatest examples of sacrificial love that I have seen. He shows his unconditional kindness and genuine concern for people. As a youth group leader, he makes a point to interact with everyone in the group and show kindness to whoever he comes across. In his busy life, he also makes it a point of going to games and performances for students in the group. It is through his kindness that we started a great friendship with one another because he showed Jesus' example of kindness. We as disciples are instructed to show this kindness to everyone around us. 
And James's example shows us the impact of this kindness. Finally, I'd like to address our transformed purpose as disciples. Now, I won't say much on this right now because Sophia and Reed will be talking about this, but in short, our, practice, our purpose is to practice discipleship. Here, I'd like to reiterate the message of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. To therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. As Christians and as disciples, we are meant to share the gospel with everyone we can. This is our purpose as Christians. And to further explain this purpose, I'd like to invite Sophia to speak about how we can not just be disciples, but disciple makers. Good morning. My name is Sophia Lind, and I am a senior at Davies High School. One Christmas when I was seven or eight years old, I got a weird but true fact book. I was so excited to read it that I couldn't even wait until we got home. We had celebrated Christmas in Minot, so I decided I would spend the entire four and a half hour drive back home reading every single fact out loud to my parents. Just like many little kids, I developed a weird obsession with this book. I was incapable of keeping quiet about all these weird facts I was learning. The same earnestness and pure excitement that kids get about new things they learn is how we should approach sharing the gospel. We should be so excited and enthusiastic to share the good news that we know, that we have been saved from sin through grace by a God that loves us so much. As disciples of Christ, we have been given a purpose. First, a part of our transformed purpose is to have faith in God. We should all focus on having a childlike faith. In Mark 10, 15, Jesus states that, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. We need to accept and share God's word like a little kid, full of innocence, complete trust, endless faith, and an undying love. We should stand in complete awe and wonder about our God's amazing works. We should also approach sharing the gospel through gentleness. 1 Thessalonians 2, 6-8 states that, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but of our lives as well. Paul is describing the unique relationship between him and the Thessalonians, one of true friendship and love. When we share the gospel, not only do we need to have a childlike faith, but we need to share it with a gentle love that will lead others to Christ. Now, if you're like me, you may not know how to start your discipleship. What I found is that you have to start small. Don't feel pressure to evangelize to every single person that you talk to. A good place to start is by identifying your spiritual gifts and finding ways to incorporate those gifts into your lives in a way that glorifies God. We are actually told in Romans 12, 6 through 8, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. God calls us to not only know our gifts, but to use them as well. If you take advantage of your natural talents and use them to glorify God, 
you would be surprised at how easily this comes to you. One of the gifts I have been blessed with is my natural tendency to lead. I am the student that usually takes initiative in group projects. I love planning and hosting get-togethers with my friend group. And I even co-created a group here in the Bethel Students Ministry called Student Ambassadors. The main purpose of Student Ambassadors is to welcome new and established students to Sunday Night Live and organize events in order to grow in fellowship. Back in November, we hosted a Friendsgiving where we played games, ate snacks, and just enjoyed our time together. Coming up later this month, on Friday, February 24th, we are actually hosting a Galentine's for the girls in student ministry. Our goal is to create a sense of community and bridge the connection between grades for not only the girls that are currently attending our youth group, but any girl here at Bethel. We also hope to eventually host a movie night, Nerf Gun War, and various other activities later this year. Discipleship isn't only spreading the gospel to those around us, although that is something we should prioritize as followers of Christ. But it is also our personal growth in our faith. It is our journey to become more Christ-like and to show his love to those around us. However, it takes time to grow in this journey, which is why Reed will be explaining why we need to train and equip ourselves. But remember this, God has given you a purpose, one that is unique to your spiritual gifts. So use it and work on becoming more like Christ. Good morning. I'm Reed Schrader, a senior at Cheyenne High School. Nathan and Sophia have preached to you about what it means to be a disciple of Christ and how being a disciple should change your purpose in life. And now I'm going to explain how being a disciple should shape your life. Pastor Andy has been walking us through the book of Ecclesiastes for these past few weeks, and one of the themes of that book is that there are good times and there are bad times. He has spoken about how we should rejoice in the good times and prepare for the bad times. Ever since the Enlightenment, there has been a bad time that most Christians have gone through at at least some point in their lives and many of us have fall, fallen from the faith because of it. This bad time is intellectual attacks against Christianity. According to the Barna Group, a Christian research institution, as much as 70% of self-professed Christians who enter college will leave college self-identifying as non-religious. Now, this isn't to attack higher education. I plan on going to college next year. But it seems that when our faith is challenged intellectually, most of us don't have answers. And unfortunately, despite our scholars having answers to all the questions skeptics ask, most Christians don't know how to respond. Let's test ourselves for a minute. I'll lay out a claim I've heard from an atheist I've met in person and try to see if you can think of a response. A friend of mine once said, Jesus was just copied from pagan myths. There's absolutely nothing original about him. The Egyptian god Horus was born of a virgin on December, of 20, on December 25th, was baptized when he was 30 by a man named Anath the Baptizer, who was later beheaded. He had 12 disciples, he was transfigured on a mount, he was crucified between two thieves, and rose from the dead three days later. How would you respond? I responded by telling him that the only problem with this popular claim is that it was put together by a self-taught Egyptologist in the 1800s named Gerald Massey. He provided absolutely no evidence for his claims and was laughed out of the room by every serious Egyptologist in his time. There is no record for the date of Horus' birth. He was born of the goddess of fertility, Isis, and the god of the dead, Osiris, not a virgin. He was never baptized, nor is there any record of anybody named Anup the baptizer. Horus had four disciples, not twelve. He was never transfigured on any mount, and his religion was dying off before the Romans even invented crucifixion. This popular claim that has tens of millions of views on YouTube 
is found to be completely wrong and have no basis in reality. But that was only made apparent because of how I had equipped myself to defend my faith. So needless to say, this is not a reason to leave Christianity. But I'd be willing to bet there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the United States who have left Christianity because of this supposed argument. Jesus commands us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind in Matthew 22:37. And while Sophia described earlier, um, he tells us to have a childlike faith that is complete trust, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage, to not have a childish faith that is a blind trust. Jesus wants us to analyze our convictions and be able to defend our beliefs so we can explain why we trust them completely. In 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Paul makes a distinction here between training and teaching, and he did this for a reason. Teaching is the act of imparting knowledge, and it's important, but training is preparing for a challenge. When I received my lifeguard certification, my instructor did a lot of teaching, but she did a lot more training. We practiced every possible rescue scenario at least a dozen times, and we have in-services every single month to practice all of these rescues. I have prepared a rescue for the situation that a person has fallen unconscious during a spinal injury in deep water at the bottom of the pool. I'm also prepared for the situation that that person is floating, because that's a different rescue. If I, were, if I were to just be taught the theory behind why we do these rescues and never practice them, I would never be able to do this in an emergency situation. My mind would be taken over by nerves, and I would forget what to do, or I'd mix up my rescues. But because I prepared for the situation and practiced, I won't ha even have to think when something like this happens, because the rescue will feel natural to me. There are five parts of the training process, and they can be broken down into the acronym TRAIN, T-R-A-I-N-N. First, T. Test yourself and others to expose your weaknesses. This is like what we did earlier with that Horace question. You're seeing what you know and what you need to work on. If somebody were to ask you why you think Jesus rose from the dead, could you give a convincing answer? Second, R. Require. Require more of yourself and work hard to learn more. If you're like me, you've spent hundreds of hours preparing for an educational degree, exercising for personal fitness goals, or doing a hobby. Most of you have also done the same hard work for your profession. Have you invested that same kind of hard work and dedication into understanding and defending what you believe as a Christian? Once we test ourselves, we'll see our weaknesses. And I want to encourage you to raise that bar and require more of yourself, and those you are discipling as well. I know it can sound intimidating, but if you take enough small steps, eventually you'll be a mile down the road. Third, A, arm yourself for battle. While there may be many atheist authors writing against the Christian worldview, there are even more educated and articulate Christian casemakers defending the claims of Christianity. These answers are easier to find now than ever before. There are many Christian philosophers, scientists, investigators, and authors making the case for Christianity today. On the screens, there's a QR code that links to quite a few books from uh, books and apologists that I highly recommend looking into, along with a short explanation of why I recommend them. And fourth, I. Involve yourself and hit the streets. Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven were these. All authority in, on heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20. I've heard it said this way. 
It's the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. God hasn't come back yet because he desires that none should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And we have the joy of being able to help with that if we follow our Lord's commands and evangelize our neighbors. And fifth, N, nurture others and model the nature of Jesus. 1 Peter 3.15 states, Always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that is in you, but do so with gentleness and respect. You could probably call that my life verse. Um, but I have to admit that I often find it easier to give the reason for the hope that is in me than to do so with gentleness and respect. Christ wants us to model our nature after his, both with believers and with non-believers. We have to be able to care for believers who are doubting their faith, and we need to be able to answer the attacks of any hostile non-believers without letting them get angry or getting angry ourselves, because if either one of those scenarios happens, we won't be able to convince them of anything. When disciples are equipped to share and defend their faith with gentleness and respect, it can change the world around us in radical ways. Our brothers and sisters in China have taken this advice to heart, and because of this, Christianity is growing there at rates that haven't been seen anywhere since the first century. God commands us to love him with all of our mind, and an easy way to get started is by actively training ourselves to follow him 24-7.